Hi, I'm Ryan, one of the hosts of the ED&D podcast. I love reading academic research, but one of the things that's tricky about it is it's conducted under very controlled conditions. So I've always wondered what it would look like if, instead of researching under perfect conditions, we went into schools and just observed all the good things that are happening and draw some conclusions so that we can share with others. Our guests today are here to talk about just that. We have Dr. Joe Johnson, and Dr. Rupi Boyd from the National Center for Urban School Transformation. We'll be talking about the power of observation to help us learn about the essential practices that work in high-performing urban schools. Each time going in, trying to understand what's there, what's making sense, why is this working? And we'll also get to hear stories about how the researchers at NCUST discovered these essential practices that work so well for kids. And confirmation continuously comes that schools that have these characteristics that are putting in these practices really are achieving great results for kids across the board. Okay, before we get started, a quick plug for our training that we're putting together with NCUS themselves. They'll be showing up here for their first session next week, and you can find out more about that and register for the training on our website, equityindesign.com. All right, enough from me. I can't wait for you to hear this. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Ryan Estriato, and I'm one of the hosts of the ED&D podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with two guests from the National Center for Urban School Transformation, which started in 2005. As part of their mission, the center established the National Excellence in Urban Education Award program to identify and begin to study some of the nation's most successful urban schools. In 2012, center members Joseph Johnson, Cynthia Uline, and Lynn Perez published Teaching Practices from America's Best Urban Schools. And in the book, they describe findings from their first studies, and they go into what they learned were the habits of high-performing urban schools. One of our guests today is Dr. Joseph Johnson, who's the founding executive director of the National Center for Urban School Transformation. Dr. Johnson has been a professor at San Diego State University and an award-winning educator in New Mexico and Texas. And also on the show is Dr. Rupi Boyd, who is an executive coach at NCUST. She is a former teacher, principal, and superintendent. She has had an unparalleled record of raising student achievement at low-performing schools in Los Angeles and San Diego. Dr. Boyd and Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Also here with me are teammates Olivia Rivera. Olivia, how are you doing? Good. It's good to be back. And also with me, teammate Marcus Jackson. Marcus, how are you? Doing fine. Good, good to be here. Okay, everybody. So we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Usually, so we, I, I want to talk about the thing I'm most excited to talk about today is, uh, is the training series that y'all are doing for uh, the Equity, Disproportionality, and Design Project. And so we'll definitely get to that. Uh, but I want to give the listeners some context and go all the way back, usually something that we do with all of our guests, because we found that the journeys of the folks that we talk to are uh, not only varied, but often surprising, like the, the way that they got to where, uh, where, where they are in education now. And so we just want to start there. How did you get into education and how did you find your way to the uh, position and role that you're in now? Uh, Joe, let's start with you. Well, I started as a teacher in Southeast San Diego. I had gone out of state to college and came back to San Diego with 
have both a special ed and a general ed background. Um, I got my first teaching job as a long-term sub in a classroom that was uh, labeled as a special day class for uh, severely emotionally disturbed children. Um, they weren't. Um, <laughs> they were kids who were in severely challenging environments. And um, then I taught in a regular elementary school and, and in my elementary school teaching, I had uh, the fantastic opportunity to work with an amazing principal who um, was leading us to really transform teaching and learning for children. And that's when I saw the, the impact that leaders can have in working with teachers. And that made me decide that I wanted to become an administrator. And then for the next uh, 40 years, um, I was pursuing various opportunities in educational leadership. I, uh, so something that you said really stuck out to me because I always remember my first day. I started out as a school psychologist, and I remember what it was like. You, know, you come in with all of the training, um, but one of the things that I just personally don't think you could ever prepare for is just like what it's like to be at a school, like just what that— feeling is like and what stuck out to me is you started as a sub in a uh, in a classroom with what I'm assuming had some pretty challenging behaviors in it what was what did that like first day work feel like so this classroom that I had the privilege to serve was a classroom where the students had been removed from other special day classes in, San, in the San Diego Unified School District for various reasons and were sent to this class. Um, and I, and I, had, I, I graduated from college in mid-year. And so I just assumed that I would spend the rest of the year as a sub. I subbed for three days and then I got a call asking if I wanted this long-term sub-assignment? And I said, yes. And I said, well, don't wait, wait. You want to hear what this class is? And I said, it doesn't matter. I need a job. And when I got to the school, I learned that my class was on the back 40, so to speak. And so I had to walk through the rest of the school to get there. And um, the other teachers in the school greeted me by saying, I hope you stay till the end of the day. And another teacher said, oh, so you're the next victim. And another teacher said, uh, we'll pray for you. And, and then when I got into the classroom and I met my students. Um, by the way, there were 18 of them mm -hmm. in, in this classroom for severely emotionally disturbed kids. That was the way my introduction to teaching started. 
when uh, it's one of the downsides to podcasts is you can't see the people <laughs> as we're having the conversation, but we're just sitting like all of us. I can see everybody because we're doing this on Zoom and, and we're all just like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. Yeah, I stayed. <laughs> yeah, you sure did. I you sure did. A part of my motivation for staying was the way that the long term sub thing worked is that like, you got like um, an extra $10 a day, but you, if you missed a day, you went back to regular sub pay. And so it's like, uh, you know, I had, I had student loans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, it was part of my reality. So, but I also knew, I also knew that the kids had such a low level of trust of anyone because people had bailed on them, yeah. uh, you know, left and right. So I yeah. had to be there. <laughs> Rupi, let's go to you. What was your, uh, what was your introduction to education like? Um, so my introduction, I was born in India, so I am a second language learner. I grew up in Imperial Valley, a very small town, as you know, all central. Um, I came to UCSD and I had a, a high school biology teacher that really inspired me. And so I went into the sciences and I was working at Scripps Research Institute where I had students shadowing for the day. And then as I got to know these students for over the summer program, I realized a lot of them were born in the United States, but still struggled with the language. I thought that was interesting. So I made a career change because, you know, it was my responsibility for these kids to know that, you know, just because uh, you're a second language learner doesn't mean you can't achieve things because the stories I heard. So I went back to school and got my teaching credential. And then I started teaching at a high school. But like Joe, I had a substitute position. A teach position had opened up at Taft Middle School. Um, the teacher was, you know, a very popular teacher. And uh, so they asked me to, if I would be interested, I went. They handed me the biology book and uh, said, here you go. So that was my introduction to classroom instruction. And what I didn't know was they put all the high profile boys into my classroom. I didn't know anything about whatever it was that was going on. But the, I had such a passion for learning and getting to know kids because I didn't know. I guess what I didn't know was there were supposed to be structures and routines and, you know, you're supposed to run your class really strict. I wanted to get to know the kids because that's the only way I had um, created a, a relationship. So as the school year progressed, one class, I think I had, I don't know, 20 boys and maybe eight girls. It was really crazy. but it came around, you know, the passion and the understanding and getting to know it, it really made a difference. And then throughout, I've always wanted to advocate for kids because I believe that if their parents can't advocate, that we need to make sure as educators, we're there and all kids can achieve. It was amazing. I mean, I still think back and, you know, years later, I think I was at Fashion Valley Mall with my kiddos and one of the kids. I just was screaming my name and I got off the escalator and said, Miss Boyd, because you told me I could go to college. I'm in college now. I was just like, oh my God, you know. And I had a lot of those experiences living in San Diego and seeing some of my students because, you know, at that time they were older. And then I moved down to, I couldn't figure out what was causing the students that were born in the United States still struggling with English. So I went down to the middle, went down to the elementary school to figure out what the, what the, 
what the problem was. Why was it that we had all these kids here who are born here and are proficient and they should be proficient in English? And what we found out is when I got to, um, they had no practice of English anymore when we got to Jackson Elementary School. The kiddos were speaking Spanish constantly all day at school and all day at home. So there was no exposure to English anywhere. And, you know, we got, did some studies and Fortunately for me, I worked with, um, I was a doctorate student with Dr. Johnson and got to know a lot of his studies. So just following that path led me to where I am. So I've always been uh, passionate. I don't, I don't believe because, you know, child's disability doesn't, rec doesn't recognize who they are. doesn't reach their potential. The child's language doesn't uh, inhibit their potential. All children, regardless of where they are, we're all, um, intelligent and have great skills in one area or another so we can all achieve and so that's really where it is and I and you know that's the only thing I want to be in education for if I can't make that difference then really I'm in the wrong profession and that's what I came in for I want to be an advocate I want to be a voice for students that don't have that voice yeah one of the things that I'm noticing from both of your stories is this like uh how that first day, like that first assignment really shaped, it, you know, introduced you to parts of the education system that that you realized almost right away that just kind of felt it needed to be something else. Um, now, of course, uh, you're both at uh, NCUS, which is the National Center for Urban School Transformation. Uh, and this is a really interesting organization because they're your position to learn about what works in classrooms, so to study classrooms all over the country. Um, and of course, you've got this this really great platform to share that information with others now. So NCUS has worked uh, in schools in a bunch of different states, California, Arizona, Texas, Kansas, Utah, and others. Those are all on, on the website. But one thing that struck me is that's a so if you talk about like that first day, you know, you're sort of you're introduced to a classroom and then fast forward many years now, you're on a much, much different scale. Um, so from the classroom to now, like this national level where you can reach a lot of different people. And I'm just curious, when was the moment in your career when you realized that that you wanted to work at that that scale, that really big scale? Rupi, what's your what's your take on that? Um, I'm fortunate to be able to work on that skill because one of the things I found out being in this position is I don't, I can focus on really helping and working with the students. So when I came back to San Diego, I talked to Dr. Johnson because that was really where my passion has always been, is helping schools figure out where, um, how we can support kids because it's not easy work. So when I worked on my dissertation with Joe, um, Joe was my, um, uh, uh, advisors. So when I did my dissertation, it was knowing on the doing gap and really figuring out what is it that's getting in the way. And so that's always triggered my interest. So working at the center, we've able to we've been able to identify some practices that are really, you know, um, that really make a difference for kids and continue that work. And that's where supporting schools and not being um, people not being scared that I'm going to come in and evaluate them. We're here to really help and figure out kids. We're ready to roll up our sleeves. And that's what drew me into this particular organization that is all about trying to figure it out because there is really no one system or no one method. If that existed, I think we would be millionaires. But none of that system exists. And we're not out. It's part about the center. The center isn't out to make money. It's really about helping kids. So, And that's what's really important. 
Joe, what about you? When was the moment that you realized that you wanted to work on on, on a uh, much larger scale than just a single classroom? So when I was working on my doctoral degree way back in a different century, I, uh, I was in Austin, Texas at the University of Texas. And I started working with the State Department of Education in Texas just to have a job to pay for the PhD, right? So um, it wasn't my it wasn't my focus, but I got promoted and then got promoted again. Eventually I was in a cabinet level position and I was directing Title I for the state of Texas. And my boss, the state superintendent or commissioner of education in Texas, called me into his office and explained that the state was initiating this new state accountability system where there would be a focus on every demographic group of students. And and he said that my job as the Title I director is going to be to help make sure that Title I schools, schools that serve predominantly children of color, predominantly low-income children, that those schools would do well in this new accountability system. He said, that is your job, Joe. Holy smokes. Uh, and so I started asking for the data runs because I wanted to see um, were there, how were Title I schools doing on this brand new accountability system? And, and the results were so depressing. Um, there were school, school after school after school where none, none of the children were demonstrating proficiency on this, quite honestly, very low level assessment. There was nothing about this assessment that um, you would think, you, you would think that every child would be able to pass this, master this. And, and we had Title I schools where none of the kids were doing this. And then I would see that there were a few, kids, a few schools where the results were, were actually excellent, uh, at least compared to the others. And so I started asking, what's going on with those schools? Uh, why is it that they're so much more successful than this other school that is in the same neighborhood, same school district, same school board, same fiscal issues. What's up with that? Uh, and somebody needed to study that. And um, so it wasn't long afterwards that I got the opportunity to be that someone. And 
start studying those schools. And that led to other opportunities that actually positioned me to start in custom, start our focus on identifying, uh, celebrating and studying amazing schools that get great results for every demographic group they serve. Yeah, so um, you started NCUS, and then as members a few hour, a few years after that, uh, published a book called Teaching Practices from America's Best Urban Schools. And I want to read a quote uh, from that book. Uh, this quote really stuck out to me. It says, uh, through our examination of many pages of field notes, observation records, and interviews of teachers, principals, and students, we condensed our findings into eight practices. As we shared our findings with educators from several of these high-performing schools, they affirmed that these are the essential practices they envisioned and pursued. And I really like this quote because, uh, you know, we were kind of joking around before we, we started our conversation that uh, on our team, I tend to get... Um, get pinned with the uh, the quantitative stuff. Just I spend a lot of time working with data, I help build the data tool, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that we learned working with quantitative data, particularly when we're looking at a at um, a large scale, like statewide, like our project does, or nationwide as your project does, um, is uh, something that Ruby pointed to earlier, which is you can't really, these, the conditions at each of these schools and all the just kind of countless variables involved make it such that even when you have really rigorous research, you can't find like one or two things that'll work for everybody. Um, I think that's something that if we're all kind of honest and we look at reality, we see that that is, that's kind of a layer we always have to consider when we're reading, you know, more quant sort of quantitative research. Um, And so, and I really like this approach where it's like, you're both leading with your curiosity. You know, you, you, you see that there is variation in performance of schools, even intuitively, like when you see that uh, you can, not in a quantitative way, but just sort of with your gut control for like neighborhoods and stuff like that. And so I really like this approach that NCUS takes um, where it's like, well, why don't we just go out there and watch? Um, and I want to know, uh, could you talk about why you chose that approach, I, I know that that y'all have both, you know, you've written dissertations. You have to do some level of quantitative stuff, if not a lot of it. What made you turn towards uh, observation and stories as a way to study? What's your take on that, Ruby? The people that are in these schools are the experts, so really learning from them and how do you best learn from them is uh, watching what they're doing. Um, asking them how what made them decide that how did they come to be a lot of these questions are that get answered because if you look at research and it's first person so you're really getting it from that individual and you're really seeing it over a period of time it's not a one-shot deal you're really trying to understand and it's happening over and over again in all of these classrooms and these schools it's like how do you how did you guys reach this what did you do and really um, looking at all these different schools. Now, Joe and uh, Cynthia and Lynn are the ones that did the primary research on that. I was just there to help and study these schools and learning so much from all these individuals, which we've continued the process of, you know, every year we recognize high-performing schools and we continue that same process of understanding and confirmation continuously comes that schools that have these characteristics that are putting in these practices really are achieving 
great results for kids across the board, regardless of the child's um, language level, socioeconomic level, um, uh, and disability level, is they're making it. And it doesn't matter if it's in California or in Texas. There's, you know, these staff members really have figured out how to make it work, and they were able to share that information with us. Joe, do you find with the audiences that you train that the idea that your research is from direct observation resonates more with them versus uh, coming in with a list of interventions and effect sizes? Like, how audiences responded? So many of us in our profession have been disappointed by what we sometimes refer to as scientifically based research. And I think that's because sometimes our focus on the data comes from studies where everything is very controlled and then somebody is looking at one variable and they're looking to see if that variable makes a difference. And if it makes there a difference that's considered statistically significant, then that's touted as a big solution. But teachers and counselors and principals, they don't have controlled situations. They are working in the real world with real children with real constraints that vary. And, and so what we have done is we've entered these places. Yes, we have looked at their data, okay? So we know that they are getting great results for Latinx kids, for African-American kids, for every racial ethnic group, for every income group. We know that their English learners are showing tremendous gains. And we know that they do not use selective admissions, right? Because there's some schools that get great results, but they only take great kids, right? Uh, but but we know these things and then we decide that we're going to go in and we're going to watch and we're going to listen. Um, in research, we, called it, we call it a grounded theory approach. We start from the ground and we just wanna learn. We wanna see what happens. We want to listen. We listen to the teachers. We listen to the students. We try to understand what is it fundamentally that is driving change in these places. I've heard this uh, this term grounded uh, theory before, and the, the place that I heard it was... Uh... From my understanding, I, I don't have a background in grounded theory, but like, but uh, but my understanding is that this is the research approach that Brene Brown uses for her um, for her books, where she she researches shame and vulnerability and 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 uh, the way that she analyzes the hours and hours and hours and hours of interviews is through this 
almost reminds me of a similar kind of design process that our team uses where we interview folks and then we look for themes across a lot of different conversations. Is it is the process very similar to what y'all do when you go look at these uh, high-performing schools? Yes. So it's basically just going in without specific hypotheses and going in without a lot of preconceived notions about what is making a difference. You know, in, in our more traditional research approaches, we go in with a specific hypothesis and then we're trying to confirm or refute that hypothesis. This really isn't about that. It's about trying to understand what's happening in this place. And then when we're using that approach across multiple schools, so over the years, to date, we've, we've studied 167 schools um, in 25 different states. And where we're each time going in, trying to understand what's there, what's making sense? Why is this working? Why is this making a difference for these children? And, and as you pointed out earlier, when it comes to teaching, we find fundamentally there's these eight practices that are big in influencing the success of every demographic group of children within these schools. Uh, Joe and Ruby, thank you so much for just sharing your stories with you. Everything that you've said has just resonated in so many ways. Um, and uh, as a special education practitioner, most of my career, um, I've, I've learned, right, we've, we've learned in education that behavior is a form of communication. And I think back to all the days working at the school sites when general education teachers or um, administrators would refer students for special education. You know, when you're a special ed practitioner, you're thinking oh, another referral. But now in retrospect, I'm starting to realize they were asking for help. They were always asking for help. You know, it's not that, you know, they just wanted students out of their classroom. They just didn't know what to do to help those students. So we're super excited at the South County SELPA to have this collaboration with ANCAST. You know, going into the remainder of this school year and part of next school year, we're going to be offering five sessions of training for educators in California. Each of those sessions will be focusing on essential practices that you spoke about, promoting clarity, checking understanding, providing feedback and adapting culturally uh, responsive teaching, building fluency and with gatekeeper vocabulary and promoting successful practice. My invitation right now for our listeners is to go to our website at equityanddesign.com and look at our upcoming events where we're going to have um, the links to where you could sign up for these free professional development sessions. Um, one starts in October, the following will start in January. But um, Rupi and Joe, right now, if you could tell us, this is a big, massive undertaking, right? We're doing these five sessions. We want people to come. We, we're excited to have them here and learn from you and other practitioners. 
Tell us about what you're hoping that the audience will get from the series. I'll start by saying we want more than just for audiences to sit and listen and be entertained by this. We want folks to move to a place where they understand fundamentally what these practices are about. We want them to be informed, but we also want them to be inspired to take action. And and so you mentioned that there are five different um, workshops, but 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 beyond that, we want people to understand that each workshop is really going to include three opportunities. One is an opportunity to kind of get introduced to this and to see it and to understand what it is, what it isn't, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, why it works, um, when it works, uh, and, and, and maybe also understand why is it that people have used some of this language but aren't hitting it out of the park. In fact, they're hitting a foul ball. <laughs> and, and so we want people to understand what it is, but then what we also are offering is a second opportunity where one of our coaches, and that could include um, me, Rupi, uh, others on our team, um, we, we want to be able to sit with your team, their team, uh, and, and really help them think through how do they make movement on this? And then a third opportunity where we invite teams to, to come back together and to share um, how they're progressing, what are they doing, so they can learn from each other. We want to see schools in California become expert at, at these practices in ways that help them elevate learning results for all of the children that they serve. So as you said, Olivia, people are less likely to feel that in order to be successful, that they've got to refer children to special education. Because with, with these practices, there's going to be more children that they can say, oh yes, I can serve you well. I can help move you to high levels of achievement. You won't need special education because you're going to get something special, really special in my general education classroom. That's what we really want. Wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Rupi, anything you'd like to add? Yeah. In addition to that, I think Joe summarized it really well, but it'll create a, a common dialogue among the colleagues to have a conversation as to continue to put these practices in place. They'll use common language across their schools so children understand 
what we mean when we're saying, you know, we're promoting clarity. What does that look like? What does that sound like? So you go from one classroom to another and they'll have certain, you know, shared experiences and shared conversations and shared understanding of what it all means. And that really will take the, uh, the whole staff to the next level as well and promoting and implementing these practices. That is such an important point that Rupi just made because the truth is we can go into almost any school anywhere and we can find one or two teachers who are implementing many of these practices. But what we know is that that isn't enough to make a powerful difference for students. The power occurs when you have a team, a team of teachers. It doesn't necessarily mean every teacher, but, but you've got a critical mass of teachers coming together, working together, supporting each other around developing these practices and doing this well. When that happens, wow, you can really create something special that magnifies the likelihood that all students will achieve at high levels. Dr. Johnson and Dr. Boyd, uh, like Olivia said, I appreciate your passion. It just comes through in terms of your advocacy for students. And, and that's what we're all about here at ED&D. E, e, um, one thing that um, we know that schools are dealing with right now is just the level of uh, anxiety and stress, uh, what the pandemic has caused. And uh, Rupi, I, I, I wanna go back to what you mentioned before. Um, uh, when you're working with a school and you're getting them to uh, um, realize that you're there to not evaluate them, more or less to, to help. And, and um, how long is that process for you all? Because uh, right now teachers have a lot on their plate. Schools have a lot on their plate. Do you find you guys have had to uh, readjust in terms of how you're working with schools now because um, maybe they feel overwhelmed with doing so much? Is there something that you can give them that they could do like for the next few weeks just to get started in terms of uh, really making a difference in their schools? Right now, the schools that I'm working with, the most critical thing is um, taking those opportunities of a building relationship and providing um, students the same support that we know staff needs. We know everyone's experiencing anxiety. Taking that opportunity and finding literature that supports that while you're still providing the instruction, but you're also building those relationships and providing coping strategies for kids. You're also providing those coping strategies for yourself. It's a very important um, um, lessons because they provide the social emotional support for kids because if we know that if kids aren't getting that and they're not understanding what's happening because to a lot of little ones this is very vague and you know people things are happening and so when they get that context and they get that understanding learning is taking place because otherwise learning is not taking place because they're too worried about where's the next meal coming from what if my mom's going to be okay when i get home so sharing of the stories and sharing of the the literature and then letting kids talk and talking them through 
you know, all that is learning. Is all that is taking, you know, we often think, oh, our learning only takes place when you open up a textbook. No, learning is constantly taking place in the classroom. And we are, you know, very empathetic. Teachers are very kind-hearted, and they want to embrace, and they want to support, and they are bringing some of those strategies to help the kiddos. And while they're learning these you know, while they're learning the strategies, they're also learning academic language. They're also learning ways of the society. They're also, you know, getting uh, information that they can digest and kind of rethink about and walk away with to help them relax. So there's a lot that we can do even in these times. That doesn't mean that learning has to stop because it just it just means we're using different researchers. I think that's where we talk about being responsive. You know, it's really thinking about what the situation demands and what what literature or what what am I going to choose to help kids understand this pandemic or understand the situations that are happening so they can grow up to be healthy individual. You know, um, we certainly recognize that this is a very difficult time for educators. Um, we hear that all over the country. And um, we recognize that teachers, support staff, administrators are being asked to do so many things. They're being stretched so thinly. And we appreciate and respect those challenges. But I think it's really important to understand that what we're talking about here is not doing something additional. What we're talking about is doing the same things that we're, you know, fundamentally being asked to do as teachers, but doing it in a way that is much more likely to yield results especially for children who are enduring stresses, for children who are um, feeling all of the effects of this pandemic. And so while I recognize that there are educators who are thinking, um, this is a hard time to be doing something extra. I can't think of a better time for embracing this work because it has such potential to help educators do what they're struggling so mightily to do. I want to reflect on, now that we've talked about the, uh, uh, our, the training time that we're going to be spending um next week and then going into the future i'm really curious about what y'all see you know i think we spent we're we're spending a lot of time thinking about how to solve some pretty urgent problems of course but i know that as uh as educators we're, we're also always thinking ahead and i want to ask um both of y'all to think really far ahead because i'm curious about given the situation we're in right now, what you see for the future of education um, in the next, say, four or five years or so. What do you hope happens? What do you hope stays the same? And, and what do you hope 
changes. Rupi, let's go to you. So the future of education, I mean, you know, every, I think some amazing things came out of this pandemic, um, even though it was very um, uh, bleak. I mean, but the amazing things that came out is technology for all students, because that used to be such a struggle for our, some of our families to have technology and have access and kids learning these skills that are so vital and this new you know, world. I mean, we think about the world is flat in a lot of ways. And our kids were falling behind some of them, and now they they gained some of these skills. I think I believe technology is here to stay, and technology is a great tool. But how do you utilize it, and how do you help kids become critical thinkers? Because there's so much information coming out. Um, and then thinking about the future is going to be what do our classrooms look like? I think they're going to be blended a lot of them, and kids are going to go back and forth because. We have, you know, we were not prepared for this pandemic. We were teaching like like what I learned in the 1970s. We're still teaching in the same manner. And then this pandemic just kind of hit us. And then all of a sudden, our educators are so phenomenal. And they adapted so quickly. And they, you know, they just, it's just amazing that they didn't even know the skills that they had. And I think as the world is evolving and as education evolves and as these um, pandemic and other related things are evolved. Our education, our classrooms are going to continue to evolve and continue to adapt and continue to look. Um, there's going to be similarities because that relationship piece cannot be taken by anyone else. Teachers are very critical for kids, whether they're on Zoom, whether they're in person, that relationship piece is going to stay, and I hope it stays forever. Um, the learning of the tools and the technology, I think that's what's going to take the biggest change. We're going to start learning and we're going to start re researching and we're going to have different kind of ways to help kids understand and adapt. But the eight steps, the eight strategies that we're talking about are not going to change. Because regardless of what you put in front of kids, if you're not very clear on what kids are supposed to learn and walk away, it doesn't matter what tools you put in there. It doesn't matter the relationship. So promoting clarity and checking for understanding, all that stuff is not going to change over the next 10, 20 years. That's going to be here to stay. That's a really interesting point, just speaking to the uh, the longevity of those those principles because uh, or those uh, uh, essential practices. Because in theory, what you observed has just has has uh stood the test of time anyway i mean um you, you would you know one would think right that that you i think the chances of you showing up at a school and seeing an essential practice the chances of that practice having just occurred in the last year or so versus evolved over decades and decades and decades through all kinds of different sort of changes in our country um you know i think that's that must be one of the most valuable things in those observations is is that you you're you're seeing the the evolution of practices that aren't really new. That's a really interesting point. Um, Joe, what about you? What do you uh, what do you hope to see change in the next five years in education? So, one of the frustrating things for me is seeing that there are still relatively few schools where we see outstanding results for every demographic group of students. You know, there are tens of thousands of urban schools in our country, <laughs> yet we go through great, great pains 
to identify a couple of hundred that meet our criteria. It shouldn't be that way. It, it, the fact, the fact that we have identified this 167 schools, that suggests to me quite clearly, quite powerfully that it can be done, that mortals are doing this. Um, but the fact that we still are not doing this for the majority of schools across this country, that's an indictment. And, and, and we all have to be committed to the change. You know, I think when people hear about these practices, they're going to see, uh, oh, you know, this is, this is kind of logical. This, this, this just makes sense. This is the way it should be. They're not going to see this as rocket science, but it is still fundamentally different from the core of what we provide in general in public schools in America. So what I hope to see across the next four or five years is a sense of commitment, a sense of urgency to, to really refine our practice, to fundamentally say, how can we support each other? How can we work together as school teams uh, to really um, not necessarily chase products or chase a particular name brand program, but how can we focus on these principles, these essential practices in ways that will make it such that many, many more of our students will succeed? Okay. So uh, let's uh, let's wrap up because we're uh, we're coming up on almost an hour uh, here. So that's that's about the uh, the closing point for us. And we want to uh, you know we we're in South County Salpa, which is in San Diego. And um, you know before we started the EDND project, um, our the folks that we were trying to support um, were almost entirely in San Diego. And then with EDND we. Um, you know, we expanded out to uh, to school districts in, in California. Now, I know that uh, NCUS, of course, is located at San Diego State University here in San Diego. Um, and so we're going to have some folks listening um, from all over California. And then uh, our our podcast data tells us that we have folks listening from other parts of the country also. So just curious uh, for our listeners, uh, this is a question for both of you. What are your your two, especially now that we're looking at restaurants, uh, at least not all of them, but more open than they were about a year ago. Uh, if I were an out of towner and I was coming uh, to San Diego, what restaurant would you send me to? Joe, let's start with you. Oh boy. So my favorite Mexican restaurant closed during the pandemic, and I'm still in mourning. Yeah, uh, that was Chiquitas. Um, I don't know if any of you know 
chiquitas, but I love chiquitas. Um, uh, there's an Italian restaurant that we really like, um, Buena Forchetta. Uh, Olivia, Olivia just uh, didn't. Uh, the listeners can't see it, but Olivia just freaked out. <laughs> Apparently, she's been there. <laughs> uh, it's really nice. It's very good. Rupi, what about you? What's uh, if I ran out of towner, where would you send me? I have two, so I'm well, actually I have time, but I will t- stick to two. My favorite breakfast place is the Mission in North oh, yeah. uh, Park. Oh Legendary, my God, their yeah. pancakes are to die for. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they're just so good, and then. I do like uh, Cafe Coyote in Old Town. I don't know if you've been there. Their fish tacos, they're not really popular, but their fish tacos are really good. They're mm-hmm. the best that I've had in a long time. Um, so they're, you know, I haven't been there in a while. So we've been going to Casa de Pico lately in Grossman. That one's really good too. So both of those, all three of those, of course, you asked for one, but I gave you three. Um, like I said, they're very, their salsas, um, Cafe Coyote has salsa that's so good. Um, and their fresh food is really good. I mean, just everything there is really good. Same, same thing with Casa de Pico, that's my mom's favorite, so we always take her there. And it's just, and my mom's a very hard critic. And she grew up in the valley, and you know, she knows what good Mexican food is. And, <laughs> and Casa de Pico passes, so those are it. I mean, it's really delicious. Okay, that's about all the time that we have today. Uh, I want to thank you both uh, for for hanging out with us. I am so excited. I know we all are so excited for this training series that we're going to embark on together and just so excited to bring real-life observations about what works in the field and stories that that, that teachers and principals will recognize uh, to the ED&D community. And so I'm really looking forward to, to kick that training off, which starts next week. Um, and, uh, and we have to have you back maybe to recap, like how, uh, you know, how the training has gone and, uh, and, and talk about what's next. Um, so before we close up, where can people find out more about your work and NCUST? So the best way is through our website, uh, and they can also email us at ncust at sdsu.edu. Great. We'll make sure that's in the show notes. If you want to learn more about the Equity Disproportionality and Design Project, you can visit our website at equityanddesign.com. Uh, and also on social media, our handle is e underscore d underscore and underscore d. Joe and Ruby, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I wish we had more time to talk more because I want to hear more particularly about the the uh, topic of research and how to make that more usable for practitioners, uh, but also about tacos. I would love to hear more about that. And uh, we will be seeing you next week for uh, session number one. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for listening to the episode. We want to thank the California Department of Education and the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence for awarding the SELPA content lead grants to us and our project partners. The ED&D podcast is funded through something called the Content Lead Grant that empowers us to share this kind of work with educators and with a broad audience across the state of California. And thank you to you, our listeners, for sharing this conversation with us. Join us on our next episode where we continue the journey of interviewing professionals who possess a passion for building equitable educational services for all students. See you next time.